Chapter 4 of Plain Mary Smith, A Romance of Red Saunders, by Henry Wallace Phillips. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fight The next day, my friend Mrs. Gray waylaid father and told him fervently she didn't want me teaching her Sandy none of my fool tricks. And the old gentleman read me the riot act, trimmed me to a peak, by word of mouth. There's where me and righteous conduct near parted company. I'm afraid I sassed the old man a little. I was awful sore, you know. Anyway, it wound up unpleasant. Father wouldn't listen to my side, as usual, and I'll leave it to any man that's tried to do the right thing and had it explode with him to realize how I felt. Boys have feelings. There's a lot of folk don't believe it, but I've studied boys to a certain extent, and I'm willing to bet small sums they're almost like persons in that respect. I got ugly under pressure. Then I beat the head near off Anchor's slimy little whelp as the only relief in sight. That was dead wrong. He was way smaller than me, and hadn't done nothing at the time to deserve it. I went on father's principle that, although no immediate cause was visible, yet there was plenty in the past and future to lick him for. So I lambed his both eyes black, bunged up his nose, and sent him hollering home. He met our schoolteacher on the way. Mr. Judson and I come together fairly regular, yet we liked each other. He was a square man, Samuel Judson any new kids from thirty years' experience. He never made but one mistake with me, and he come out and begged my pardon before the whole school for that. Father sneered at his doing it, saying a teacher ought to uphold discipline, and to beg a boy's pardon was just inviting all kinds of skullduggery. Howsomever, Sammy Judson won me by that play. When he put the gad on me, it was with the best of feelings on both sides. I can see the old lad now, smiling a thin little smile, sort of sarcastic, yet real kind underneath, whilst he twiddled the switch in his hands. Just let me trim a certain amount of foolishness out of you, and you'll make a fine man, a fine man, William, he'd say. And perhaps you think that small, thin gentleman didn't know how to make a hickory bite. He could get every tender spot by instinct. Well, he met young Mr. Anchor, as I was saying, and asked him what ailed him. Algy explained the foul way I treated him, careful not to let the tail lose anything. Ah, says Sammy, and what was this for? For nothing at all. Not a thing. Sammy looks at him from under his shaggy eyebrows. I've often longed to thrash you for that same reason, says he, and marches on. But lovely Peter. Father handed me back my mistreating algae with interest on the investment. Phew. And talk. I was the most cowardly brute in the country to assault and batter a poor, nice, gentlemanly little boy, a great big hulking scoundrel like myself? Why, it passed all crimes in history. 
Old Uncle Nero scratching the fiddle whilst the fire insurance companies tore their hair was a public benefactor compared to me. That passed. I was only hindered, not stopped, in my reckless career of village pride. I'm a kind of determined cuss. But fate sprung a stuffed deck on me. I did a piece of reforming really worth doing, but it cost me my home. Moreover, I was perfectly innocent of the intention. Don't it beat the devil. To tell it longhand, the play come up like this. We had a party in our town who deserved a statue in the hall. Marianne McCracken by name. She was a holy terror. Never before nor since have I seen anything like Marianne. I reckon she had about sixty years to her credit and two hundred pounds to show for them. She ran a dairy up on the hill, doing her own milking and delivering, with only one long-suffering man to help out. I always remember that man walking around with one hand flying in the air, talking to himself. But when Miss Mary said in her bass voice, Pete, you, Pete, yes'm, yes'm, says Pete as polite as possible. The old lady used to bend slowly toward you, as if taking aim with her nose, and she fired her remarks through and through you. She'd sprung a plank somewhere and had a little list to the side, but not at all enough so she couldn't take care of her own business and any other buddies that come her way. When she went by father's house, she used to roar, Hark from the tomb, a doleful sound because she hated everything concerning Father's church, from the cellar to the lightning rod. One day she was talking to Mother, that she happened to like, snorting scornful, as was her custom, when Father had the bad luck to appear on the scene. Adele Delatter, says Marianne, what made you marry that man? Pointing a finger at Father like a horse pistol. What made you marry him, eh? Eh? Don't you answer me. Huh. He ain't got blood in his veins at all. He turns decent vittles to vinegar. Huh. His mother's milk curdled in his stomach. She humped up her back and shook both fists. He order married me, says she. I'd have fixed him. He order married me. She bawled over entirely and galloped for the gate. I'd wring his cussed neck if I stayed a minute longer, she hollers. When she got in the wagon, she rumbled and pawed and humped. Then she stuck her red face out and yelled, Order married me. I'd give him all the hell he needed. Pah, pish, yeah. Get out of here, Jackie Hoss, before you take the singing hymns. She's the only human being I ever met that did just exactly what he, she, or it sweetly damn pleased to do. In that way, she's restful to remember. Most of us have got to copper once in a while, but nothing above, below, nor between ever made her hedge a mill. Well, I was walking home from Sunday school with Miss Hitty on Sunday, trying to get points on my new system, when who should we see bearing down the street, all sail set and every gun loaded, but Miss Marianne McCracken. The first blast she give us was, 
Ah, Mehitabel. Gallivanting around with the boys, now the men's give out, hey? Poor little Miss Hitty was flummoxed, foolhardy. She stuttered out some kind of answer instead of breaking for home. Oh, my, 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 says Marianne, not paying the least attention to Miss Hitty's remarks. My, says she, you'd ought to shuck them clothes. What are you wasting your time on boys for? You was always humbly, Hitty. Yes, but you're clean. I'll say that for you. You're clean. You stand some chance yet. You get married and shuck them clothes. But shuck them clothes anyhow. You could have heard her to Willits Mountain. And away she flew. Miss Hitty cried all the way home. I did my best to comfort her, but Marianne jabbed deep. She was child entirely when we reached her front door, and she turned to me just like a child. Must I wear different clothes, Will? She says. Not a darn bit, says I. Not for all the jealous, pop-eyed old Jezebels in ten townships. She stood a moment, relieved, but still doubtful. I don't know but what I should, she said. Then I got in the argument that went every time on every question in those parts. Why, Miss Hitty, I says, how you talk. Think of the cost of it. She was so grateful she threw both arms and her parasol around my neck and kissed me then and there. I won't, she says, stamping her foot. I won't, I won't. And she swept into the house, real spirited, like a high-strung mouse. So it come, I was Miss Hitty's champion. Algy Anchor happened to see Miss Hitty kiss me, and, of course, I heard from it. All the gay wags in town took a fly out of me. Even old Eli led me mysteriously to one side and whispered he believed in helping young fellers. So when I was getting my outfit, he winked. Why, he'd make a big reduction in tinware. I stood most of the gaffing pretty well, although I couldn't stop at any place without adding to the collection of rural jokes. But at last one man stepped over the line that separates a redhead from war. There was always a crowd of country loafers around the tavern. A city loafer ain't like a country loafer. The city loafer is a blackguard that ain't got a point in his favor, except that he's different from the country loafer. One day I had to go by the tavern, and I see Mick Murphy tilted back in his chair, hat over eyes, thumbs in suspenders, big neck busting his shirt open, big legs busting through the pants legs big feet busting through the ends of his curved-up shoes, and a week's growth in pig bristles busting out of his red face. Mick was the bold bully of the rough crowd, fellers from twenty to twenty-five. He worked till he got money enough to buy whiskey, then he got drunk and licked somebody. The course of such lads is pretty regular. Mick was about a year from robbing hen roosts. Next to hen roosts comes holding up the lone farmer. Then the gang gets brash entirely. Two or three are killed, 
and the rest land in the pen. You wouldn't believe hardly what kiddish minds these ignorant, hulking brutes have sometimes, nor how, sometimes, they come to the front, big, bigger than life-size. A painter wouldn't waste a minute putting down Mick Murphy as a thing of beauty. Little bits of eyes, near hit with whiskey bloat, big puffy lips stained with tobacco juice till they looked like the blood was coming through, dirty-handed, dirty-clothed, and dirty-mouthed. Yeah. And still, well, when I remember how that bulldozer went up a burning flight of stairs, tore a burning door off with them big dirty hands, and brought a little girl down through a wallow of flames, taking the coat off his back to wrap around her, and how the pride of the man come out when the mother stumbled toward him, calling on God to reward him, and he straightened under the pain and said, Oh, that's all right, lady. If your old man stand a drink in a new shirt, we'll call it square. The son of a gun never left his bed for six weeks. Why, he was broiled all down one side. Why, when I remember that, I can't call up such a disgust for old Mick. As I said, I see Mick Murphy leaning back in his chair at the tavern. Of course, he had a word to say about me and Miss Hitty. Now, the bare sight of Mick used to make the hair stand up on the back of my neck and growls boil inside of me. I just naturally disliked the man, so I sassed him plenty. He got mad and threatened to slap my face. I sassed him more, and he did slap my face. In one twenty-fifth of a second, I caught him on his room bouquet and sent him plumb off his feet. Not bad for a sixteen-year-old, when you consider the other party was an accomplished roughhouser. Yes, sir, he went right down clean, more from the quickness than the stuff behind the blow, as I hadn't anywheres near grew into my strength yet. The tavern crowd set up a roar and then jumped to interfere. For Mick, he roared too, and made to pull me apart. The onlookers wouldn't stand for it. They weren't such high-toned gents, but a contest between a leggy kid and a powerful man looked too far off the level. You run, says one fella to me. We'll hold him. But hanged if I was gonna run. My thoughts was a mix, as usual in such cases. Most of it hardly thinking at all, and the rest a kind of white-hot wish to damage something and a desire to hustle away from there before I got hurt. Then, too, it had reached the limit about Miss Hitty. I sure wasn't going to stand hearing her name mishandled by tavern loafers. Yet the principal cause for my staying was my anxiety to leave. That big, bellowing Irishman, dragging a half-dozen men to get at me, blood streaming down his face, and his expression far from agreeable, put a crimp in my soul. And don't you forget it. But I understood that this was my first man-sized proposition, and if I didn't take my licking like a man, I never could properly respect myself afterward. So whilst my legs were pleading, Come, Willie, let's trot and see Mother. It will be pleasanter. 
I raked my system for sand and stood pat. I knew a trick or two about assaulting your fellow man as well as Mick when you come to that. Fighting is really as good an education for fighting as sparring is, and perhaps a little better. It ain't so much a question of how you make your props and parries as how much damage you inflict upon the party of the second part. Let him come, I says. What you holding him for? As if he was a raging lion or something. Let go of him. You skip, you darn fool, says my first friend. He'll eat you raw. Well, it will be my funeral, I says. If you will see he don't put me down and gouge my eyes out, I'll take him as he comes. Gouging was a great trick with that gang. I feared it more than death itself. Just at that minute, old Eli drove up. What in tarnation's this, says he. When he found out, he tried to make me go home. But all this advice I didn't want had made me more determined. I got crying mad. Oh, ding it all out thunder, says I, hopping up and down. You see me fair play and turn him loose, Eli. I want one more swat at him. Just let me hit him once more, and I'll go home. Eli was a tall, round-shouldered man, who looked like a cross between a prosperous minister and a busted lawyer. He had a consumptive cough, and an easy, smoothing way with his hands, always sort of apologizing. Several men had been led astray by these appearances, and picked a quarrel with Eli. Two weeks in bed was the average for making that mistake. He looked at me with his head sideways, pulling his chin whisker. Billy, says he, I have experienced them sentiments myself. It shall be as you say. He went to his wagon and drew out a muzzle-loading pistol from under the seat. The pistol was loaded with buckshot and four fingers of powder to push it, as everyone around knew. He walked up to Mick and put the touch of a cold, gray Yankee eye on him. Young man, he says, I ain't for your clawing, chawing, kicking style of conducting a row. So I tell you this, you fight that boy fair or I'll mix buckshot with your whiskey. Turn your bullock loose. The men let go of him and he come. Fortunately, I remember every detail of that scrap, clear as crystal. I led with my left, and Mick countered with his chin. A thunderstorm hit me in the left ear. Kerbang! Kerswat! Scurry, scurry! Biff, biff, biff! Somebody hit somewhere. Somebody with a pain in the neck. No time to find out who it is. Zip! Smash! Rip! More pains, streaks of fire on the horizon. Must have run aground. Roar, roar, bump. Ah, oh, bully for you, Billy. Slam him, Mick. Hit him again, Sonny. You got him. Now you got him. Hey, hooray! Here we go, bumping over the ties, right over the edge of the trestle. Bing! Come off on him, you big black whelp. Ugh! Let go. Twist his thumb. Kick the brute. Get up, boy. Roar. Swizz. 
Where in thunder did the big black thing come from? Never mind, no time to stop. Lovely Peter, how she rolls. Who's sick? Mick, probably. Lightning struck that time. Again. Mm -hmm. Dark. Dark. Raining ice water. He's all right. Give him a little air. Somebody crying. I did the best I could by him, Eli. G-g-g-g-gall darn him. More light. Daybreak. And here I am again, on the ground, wet to the hide, the bucket they emptied on me alongside, and Eli holding my head up. And what's the thing opposite? With one eye swelled shut and a mouth the size of a breakfast roll? Why, it's Mick. Did he lick me, Eli? says I. Eli laughed, kind of nervous. Neither you nor him, nor me, will ever know, says he. He's willing to call it a draw. I staggered to my feet and wobbled to the partner in my dance, holding out my hand. Much obliged to you, Mick, says I. He leaned back and laughed till I joined, as well as I could, for crying. He grabbed my hand and shook it. You're all right, says he. Sorry I am, I said a word to you. And you're the hell red-headed boy to fight. I've enough. Whilst I was a simple lad, I wasn't a fool. For me to hold that 225-pound rough-and-tumble fighter, even, was impossible. He was ashamed of the whole thing. As soon as his ugly temper had the edge knocked off it, he took that way of closing the deal. No bad man at all, old Mick. You say that to save my feelings, I said. What's that? says he, rough and hard. Off with you. He wouldn't admit being decent for a farm. He swung away. Then I got another jar. A voice called me, and I swung around. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Penn